dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. Hey there, welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, the Academy Awards are this weekend, and I couldn't feel less enthusiastic. Now, this was an event I always look forward to. The opening monologue was a bright spot of the night, but now that we live in this, like, woke society, the jokes are either tame and lame, or the celebrities aren't really sure if they're allowed to laugh at the punchline. There were some legitimate upset wins in the past, I'm looking at you, Marissa Tomei. But now, there are so many award shows televised that by the time you get to the Oscars, there are little to no surprises left. The speeches used to be filled with gratitude and humbleness, but now sound like lectures at Berkeley. So what's changed? I mean, it was a unique year for movies. The cinemas were shut down, and if you wanted to see a new release, you had to figure out which streaming service it was on, if you'd even heard about it to begin with. But the ratings have been on a steady decline over the years, and judging by the nominees this year, which made a total of $23.7 at the box office, it's a trend that's likely to continue. It can't all be blamed on COVID. I think it's the loss of the mid-budget movie. Right now, Hollywood is an industry of extremes. They either want to spend 2 to $5 million on a prestige movie with an opportunity to break even and win awards, or greenlight budgets of $250 million on a comic book movie with the potential to make $1 billion at the box office. When it works, executives are rolling in the dough. But as a moviegoer, if you're not a fan of either of these types of movies, you're part of that lost audience. Now I went back and looked at some of my favorite movies, and these are the numbers. 1985, The Goonies, $19 million budget, $124 million at the box office. 1987, Predator, $15 to $18 million budget, $98 million at the box office. 1987, The Princess Bride, $16 million budget, $31 million at the box office. 1989, Major League, $11 million budget, $75 million at the box office. 1989, When Harry Met Sally, $16 million budget, 93 million at the box office. Now, I didn't adjust for inflation or anything, but in the 80s, those were considered mid-budget movies, and those are pretty good returns. I'd be happy with them. But executives in Hollywood live under the term, go big or go home. And unfortunately, that means stay home to a lot of the viewing audience. Horror movies seem to be the only mid-budget films that consistently do well no matter what the period. But occasionally, when Hollywood greenlights a movie for an underserved audience, they will respond. Crazy Rich Asians had a budget of $30 million and made $239 million at the box office. Not only did it feature minority characters in leading roles, but it also was an effective romantic comedy. Or so I've heard. Streaming has affected the strategies of the major studios as well. It's becoming more profitable to sell those mid-budget movies to Netflix and recoup the costs through licensing than spending money on marketing and taking a risk at the box office. This reminds me of what's happened to the wrestling industry over the past 20 years. 
the ratings for WWE and AEW are absolutely paltry compared to the boom during the Attitude Era and Monday Night Wars. Viewing habits have changed, there are more options to watch, but that audience didn't go away. They're still out there. The problem is, wrestling stopped giving the audience something worth watching. Hollywood needs to take note. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 1 star is skip it, 2 stars watch at your own risk, 3 stars standard fare, 4 stars worth checking out, 5 stars must see. Now if I give a title 5 stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into this. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Eraserhead from 1977 about something. That's, that's all I got. I know it's about something. It was written, directed, and produced by David Lynch, the mastermind behind Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive, and Lost Highway, which has an amazing soundtrack, including The Perfect Drug by Nine Inch Nails, but I digress. Now, this is a Matt fact. He has the distinction of being one of only a handful of directors whose films have received all MPAA ratings. Wild at Heart was NC-17, Inland Empire was R, Dune was PG-13, The Elephant Man was PG, and The Straight Story was G. So anyway, this was his feature-length directorial debut, and it has all the hallmarks of what would become his signature style. The movie starts off with the Criterion Collection logo. Aren't they doing yeoman's work when it comes to the presentation and preservation of film? I will gladly pay $40 for all the special features they compile for their Blu-ray releases. They also have their own streaming service, which I would recommend. Now, I know I'm in for a bit of a trippy ride, because the main character is shown shot sideways and floating in midair, dissolved over an apparent meatball or medulla oblongata, I, I have no idea. But strap in, folks. This one's gonna be a doozy. The credits are shown over a montage of otherworldly images, I think. Look, you're not going to get much certainty from me about this movie. This is my interpretation. Take everything I say with a grain of salt. We meet Henry, who's walking home, and he's walking. And he's walking. This is what I would call padding in an independent movie. When you don't have enough for a feature-length film, you shoot B-roll footage of someone walking, birds flying around, anything that will increase the runtime. As he arrives back at his apartment, his neighbor from across the hall mentions that his girlfriend Mary has invited him over for dinner. He arrives at her house where we meet Mary and her parents. We find out that Henry works at a factory as a printer. This has absolutely no relevance to the story. They end up sitting down for dinner, and this could be the most uncomfortable dinner scene since Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But better yet, I think we've found something more awkward than your parents asking you if you've had sex. It's your girlfriend's mother asking if you've had sex. This is my odd movie observation. This movie is odd. So it's revealed that Mary has given birth to a child, though she's reluctant to say that it actually is a child. We see what she means a little later. The only way I can describe the little tyke is if they were to do a prequel to E.T., this is what the young alien being would look like. Mary moves into Henry's apartment with their baby. It refuses food and cries all night. Eventually, Mary has had enough of its shenanigans and leaves Henry with the baby. Then, things get weird. This movie is something. It's Terrence Malick meets Dario Argento with a dash of Ed Wood. I've mentioned in the past that I like quirky and offbeat movies, 
And this would fit perfectly in that category. These are the types of films that I can watch on occasion, but have to be in the right mood. I did enjoy it, though I'm not exactly sure what I should be feeling because I went back and forth from confusion to laughter. The movie does test the patience of the audience. People are sitting in silence, long takes of the main character just staring. He also waited an unusually long time for the elevator doors to close, though the funniest scene is when the girlfriend is leaving the apartment and she struggles to retrieve the suitcase from beneath the bed. At first, you're like, what the hell is she doing? And then when you realize it, it suddenly starts becoming funnier and funnier the longer it lasts. It was shot in black and white, which gives it that German expressionism feel. The cinematography was captured by Herbert Cardwell and Frederick Elms, who would become a longtime collaborator of David Lynch. Now, if you've seen one David Lynch film, you'll start to recognize the actors he works with because he tends to use them over and over. Speaking of, Jack Nance, who portrays Henry, would appear in future work by Lynch including Blue Velvet, Dune, Lost Highway, and Twin Peaks. His girlfriend Mary is played by Charlotte Stewart, another Lynch veteran of Twin Peaks. She also appeared in Little House on the Prairie and Tremors. The score was composed by David Lynch. He's a talented multi-instrumentalist who released three studio albums on his own label. The music featured is more ambient than structured pieces. It almost could be labeled as sound design. There were additional tracks by Fats Waller and an original song, In Heaven, written by Peter Ivers, specifically for the film. The runtime is 1 hour 29 minutes. It had a budget of 10000 and grossed $7 million at the box office. It's been praised by filmmakers Stanley Kubrick, John Waters, Mel Brooks, and George Lucas. Now that would be an interesting gathering. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Black Hole, The Plague, Industrial Complex, Tossed Salad, Embarrassed Silence, Nosebleed, Mrs. Robinson, Baby Fish Mouth, and I said, hey, what's going on? I give it, I don't know, out of five stars. I personally liked it, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it to everyone. I know friends who would punch me in the liver if I suggested it to them. It's a movie I'm glad I've seen and certainly appreciate it as a filmmaker, but I'm not sure if I'll ever watch it again. It doesn't have that repeat viewing vibe. I feel like it it deserves like a special ranking. So I'm going to give it pi. 3.14159265359, etc. Add a star if you liked Twin Peaks. Take off a star if you prefer movies with narrative structure. If you've seen Eraserhead and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called MattWatchThat Playback. I was hoping to do this next section completely improvised in honor of my clip selection, but I realized I'm not that talented. So, in tribute to the improvisational comedy series Whose Line Is It Anyway, I'm going to respect the craft and stick to the script. I was introduced to the show through Comedy Central, who used to air the British version hosted by Clive Anderson. It was always on in the afternoons. It featured many of the same performers as the American version, which would come out a few years later. Now, while I was in college, I took an improv class. I thought, you know, I'm a pretty funny guy, and I've seen all the episodes of Who's Line, so I'm going to ace this. Boy, um, I could not have been more wrong. If the Hindenburg and the Titanic happened on the same day, it could not have been as tragic as my performance. That's when I started to realize the specialties when it comes to comedy. Like, I'm a reactionary comedian. 
And trust me, I use that C word very loosely. If I'm with a group of people, I can come up with funny lines based on the conversation, but that's not improvisation. If someone were to set a scene and say, okay, you're a lawyer, he's a doctor. You're both in a bar that's getting robbed when you realize your brother is the robber. Go. I completely blank. I freeze up. That's why I appreciate quick minds and people who can think on their feet. So whose line is it anyway was right up my alley. I always favored games that featured Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery. They were the highlight of that show to me. Great partnership. As good as Laurel and Hardy. These were my three favorite games that they usually appeared in. The first was sound effects. In the beginning episodes, Ryan would do the sound effects and Colin would react to them. But in later series, they would both react to sound effects provided by two audience members, and it became so much funnier. The second was helping hands. Ryan would be in a scene with another performer, and Colin would act as his hands. It was ripe for comedy. One time, Colin scalded his hands with hot coffee. And if any scene involved food, Ryan would inevitably lick Colin's fingers at one point. Now, I don't know if I could have ever done that, even for the sake of comedy. The last was Greatest Hits. Ryan and Colin would be TV pitchmen who were trying to sell you the latest compilation CD set. Their banter reminds you of presenters at the Academy Awards. The only difference is Ryan and Colin are actually funny. I'll post clips of all three games in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Surface. The lives of three people become intertwined through unexplained events happening in the ocean. First, there's marine biologist and single mom, Laura Daughtery. She's portrayed by Lake Bell, who had parts in No Strings Attached, and it's complicated. She wrote and directed the comedy drama about voiceover artists in a world, and most recently starred in the TV series Bless This Mess with Dax Shepard. Next is teenager Miles Barnett, who discovers an egg which hatches into a mysterious creature that he cares for. He's played by Carter Jenkins, who starred in the Bad News Bears remake, Aliens in the Attic, and Valentine's Day. Lastly, we have Richard Connolly, who loses his brother during a diving outing. J.R. Ferguson is no stranger to television. He's been in the series Evening Shade, Judging Amy, Sleeper Cell, Mad Men, and currently co-stars in The Connors. Other notable cast members include Leighton Meester, who appeared in Gossip Girl and That's My Boy, and Eddie Hassel, who was in The Kids Are Alright and Jobs. He was unfortunately in the news late last year when he died of a gunshot wound from an apparent carjacking. This took a bit of a turn, but my sympathies are out to his family. In episode 8 of this podcast, I mentioned that I'm intrigued by the ocean, so any stories involving the Big Blue made me an immediate fan of the series. I also like when people who are unrelated from different walks of life are brought together for a common goal. It was marketed as being Spielbergian, which I suppose there are some of those classic elements present. There is a bit of a government conspiracy and cover-up, a special relationship between a boy and a creature. If there was an absentee father and shooting stars, it should just say Steven Spielberg presents. The acting is pretty good. The effects are hit or miss. I think this show would have been better received and more appropriate on Sci-Fi Network, especially at that time. It probably would have found that niche audience. The series was created by the Pate Brothers, who are the Duffer Brothers of the Aughts. 
Surface was on for one season, 15 episodes from 2005 to 2006. It's an easy binge but does end on a cliffhanger, so don't get too invested. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time... I can't take it anymore. I'm going home. His girlfriend Mary is played by Charlotte. Charlotte? Charlotte Stewart. That lovely little lass. (laughs) There's a revving car outside. There's a revving car. There we go. He's played by Carter Jenkins, who starred in the in the bomba the bomba bang the bang bang. Okay.